0: various Mediterranean cities, and they would go there, they would make money, they would move on, okay? So Boston is also a transient city. We see this all the time. People come from all over the world, and they come for education, or a starter job, or an adventure, and they spend some time here, and they get what they can from the city, and many times they move on. It's expensive, winter is long, there are things that are difficult about being in Boston, but there are many that come for Boston seeking financial gain now or in the future and have not factored God into the equation as they, as they plan. God calls people to Boston. He calls people sometimes for a short time, sometimes for a long time. But there, there, are, there can be selfish motives in how we navigate our lives. So if you go to the next uh, picture, so you know, this may be a modern day camel. Um, that is, uh, is packing up our goods and going city to city to carry on business there and do this or that. Um, and then if you go one more slide, just wanted to tie those two together. So this may be, you know, what, what that modern day picture would look like if you integrate the historical and the, and the current. Um, all right. But this truth of, of we don't know what tomorrow will bring, it appears elsewhere in Scripture. It's not just in James, right? Proverbs 27.1, um, if you go to the next slide, says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Um, so planning is not uh, wrong. Maybe one more. Um, uh, planning is not wrong. James is highlighting an inappropriate heart attitude that is overly self-confident and primarily focused on making money. Okay, he's speaking to those who've oriented their lives around the accumulation of wealth and are not consulting the father or prioritizing their relationship with him and the plans he has for them as they were intended to. So Charles Spurgeon actually notes as, as he kind of uh, does an exposition of this, uh, this passage of James that this describes a group of people that are self-absorbed. It was all about them. It was not oriented around God and their created purpose. Um, He asked, did they determine with each other, we will do today or tomorrow such and such a thing for the glory of God and to the extension of his kingdom? There was not a word about God in it from beginning to end. Okay, and then another Spurgeon quote, I like Spurgeon. "Uh, There are two great certainties about things that shall come to pass. One is that God knows, and the other is that we do not know. Okay, so we're fragile. We live and move because God created us to, and he allows us to. So James does not discourage us from planning and doing, only from planning and doing, apart from listening to and relying upon God. So as we move forward in the text, it looks like I forgot that last verse. Sorry about that one. Um, but moving into verse 14, what is your life? This is continuing on the previous theme. It is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And this appears throughout the Old Testament, right? There are references in Job chapter 8, 1 Chronicles 29, and then in Psalm 102, 11, which I believe I do have, um, the psalmist says, "My days are like the evening shadow; I wither away like grass." So James had actually already hit on this theme earlier in his letter. He talks uh, to those specifically who um, who are rich and who find security in that accumulation of wealth, in the accomplishments and possessions that they've pulled together on this earth. Um, so in James uh, chapter one, verses ten and eleven. Uh, he writes, the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. Fly- For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what the next moment will bring. We're here in this gem on August 12, 2018, um, and the future is uncertain. So we must depend Upon the presence of God and trust Him with our now and our future. And as I said earlier, I'm a scientist. I like being able to explain things, I like things that become predictable over time. I spend my days creating new things, and I do that based off evidence for the past and a hypothesis about what will happen in the future as, as we create as scientists. And it's really important for all of us that there be some predictability. When you go to the the CVS or the Walgreens or whatever drugstore of preference and buy an aspirin, it better work the same way as the aspirin you took a few weeks or a few months ago. And likewise, when you go to get a prescription medication, you want it to be the exact same thing that was run in a large clinical trial to prove safety and efficacy. It needs to be predictable. We need to know that what happened last time is what's going to happen this time. That's the world I live in. Um, but God is calling me to say, hands open, gotta trust you. I trust you with my now, with my future. I can integrate all that information around me, listen to your voice, and say, God, what's the next step? He's in control. We are not. He created all of these interdependent systems, right? He created plants that process carbon dioxide, produce oxygen, put breath into our lungs, and then we give it back to them, right? Like, he, he's thought of all this. Um, we're small. He's big. He's trustworthy. Each moment is a gift from him, and that transient, fragile nature of life could be depressing apart from God, right? Like, we're small. Um, we're powerless, but in the presence of God, we have purpose. We have meaning and a calling on our lives. He created each one of us with specific things in mind, right? He loves us, and he has a purpose for us. We are dependent on his presence. Let's see what God's calling us to, and before we jump back into James, I wanted to touch on uh, Ephesians 2.10, because I think this speaks to what a life that's dependent on God's presence and full of purpose looks like. It says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God, in His you know omniscience, in His omnipotence, He created us, and He said, "I am creating each of you individual with speci- in each of you individually with specific things that I have in store for you." He's trustworthy; we can we can be secure in that calling. We are called to partner with Jesus for His purposes on the earth. That's what we do as a church. That's what we do as individuals. He has a plan for each of our lives. He has a plan for our community. And he's calling us, our response to that is to humbly seek his direction for our lives. Each of you are significant and each of you is dependent on his presence. So moving forward in James, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So what does James say? He says that it's arrogance that th- makes us think we can live and move and have our being independent from God. We cannot, and it's arrogant for us to think that we can. This boastful arrogance, it's actually the essence of sin. This dates all the way back to the garden, right? And there was pride of life that was involved in this desire. To know more, to control more—that Adam and Eve are wrestling with in the garden—and that has followed us all through history, right? That is, that is that is inside of us, and it's transformed through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ into a reliance upon God. He calls us to humility and to depend on Him. And Paul lived this—it's—it's it's all throughout um, Paul's uh, journeys and writings. He understood God was in control, and. Um, and to the church at Ephesus in acts 18 Paul said I will come back if it is God's will right then he set sail from Ephesus to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4:19 but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing 1 Corinthians I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits God is right there in lockstep with Paul as he thinks about his future and as he makes plans for his future right that's he lived that life um, that, that God's calling us to. And I do want to be completely clear. James is not condemning planning. Paul's making plans in these verses, right? He's not suggesting we shouldn't save for future education expenses or save for retirement or calling any of those things in and of themselves evil. Um, and he's not suggesting that money itself is evil. But he, he is, uh, he's also not promising that if we have humble hearts, and depend upon God's present, that every moment will be what we would like it to look like, right? Um, Paul lived this. He was in lockstep with God's will, and, you know, there, there was uh, tremendous persecution and sacrifice in his life, right? If he had dreamed up the life that uh, in his flesh that he, he wanted to see for the future, it may not have included a lot of trips to prison um, and, and these sorts of things, but God worked through that, and Paul said, if it is the Lord's will, I want the Lord's will, and in that, kingdom was expanded. So James is rebuking a haughty heart attitude that assumes we can determine the course of future events. He's suggesting that God wants to be with us in the planning and in the journey, and he designed us to tap into his wisdom. Okay, finishing up chapter 4, we know the good we ought to do, is what this, is, this uh, verse says. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them, okay? So we know the good we ought to do. That's what James is saying. And we're responsible for obedience and follow through in that, okay? So this is a statement that I think supports my, my initial, uh, you know, um, my initial suggestion that this, this passage was intended for believers because it says here they know the good they ought to do, right? They've experienced the living God. They have relationship with the Holy Spirit, but they're, cho- they're choosing to ignore or reduce in priority God's will for their lives and his place in their planning. So this is speaking a bit to sins of commission and sins of omission, which there's an entire sermon there, but I'm just going to dive into it very shallow uh, here for just a moment because I think it's directly uh, connected to this. Um, and I do want to say that scripture makes clear that sins of omission are real and they're serious. Um, Jesus taught multiple times throughout the Gospels about underutilizing what God has given us and the opportunities that are in front of us, right? He he taught parables on this, and there was judgment associated with not following through on those opportunities um, and being passive. We we have a tendency, or I have a tendency when I think of sin, uh, to, to really focus on the things that I have done to offended God, and not the things that I have not done that were offensive to God, and that's because I have a lot of things that I have done that are that are offensive to God, right? Um, my my own confessions before the Lord tend to focus more on sins of commission rather than omission, but I, I need to also consider, and as I was prepping for this, you know, was was challenged that um, to consider more the ways and what what I've failed to do, what God's calling me to me to. It may be that a neighbor's in need and I decide to stay on my couch and watch TV instead or not go over to their yard because I've got my own thing in front of me that I need to do. Um, It may be that you're at work and you've got, you know, a circle of friends that you like interacting with and there's someone who's off by themselves, and and the Holy Spirit's kind of giving you that nudge and you can either choose to step into it or hang where you are. Um, so the Holy Spirit is working within us, um, stirring us toward, uh, toward action. And this is a consistent theme throughout the letter that genuine faith is proven by action, right? So James knows that it's, it's far easier to think about and talk about humility and dependence on God than it is to live it. But he makes the mind of God clear. As we know things, we are accountable to do them, right? This is what verse 17 says to us. If anyone that knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So this uncertainty of life and the uncertainty of future, it doesn't make us passive or inactive. It should make us ready to recognize what is good and then to step forward in that. We're dependent on his presence and his presence leads us to action. We're called to have humble hearts in tune with the will of God. So as we move into to chapter 5, I'd like to view this as an, an illustration and a, a fast-forward into uh, what the life that is independent from God, that's self-absorbed, and primarily chasing material gain looks like. So we'll see what it looks like when selfish indulgence is caused to account by God, and it's not a pretty picture. Um, this passage does not vilify wealth, but it speaks to what one does with their money. Okay. This is written, it's going, to begin, it's going to begin once again, now listen, and it's written in a tone of prophetic condemnation. There's not a redemptive alternative that's offered in this section. This path leads to death, separation from God, and we need to constantly ask ourselves as believers, when do we have too much, and what does the appearance of our life say about our heart attitudes and what we believe? So, refresher, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eating, eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. <clears throat> Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So it says you failed to pay the, the workers who mowed your fields. Ronnie Good owns a landscape company. He's not here today. He pays all his workers uh, the dues that they're owed as they're owed them. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Um, but this is coming down uh, quite hard and showing what the, the love of money can do to, to a person. Um, he's speaking to those that that are most likely to be trying to live independent from God, and that's the rich. Jesus spent a tremendous amount of time speaking about the risks of wealth as a potential obstacle to the life that God calls us to. Some of Jesus' followers were wealthy, right? We see Zacchaeus. We see Joseph of Arimathea. We see Barnabas. So it's not impossible to be rich and follow Jesus, but it's difficult. Okay, it's difficult. In Luke 6.24, uh, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Material prosperity in this life does not last. Um, it wastes away. We cannot depend on it. We know that, but we need, I need to hear that over and over again, right? But these things we see, that's not where we find our security. The accumulation of wealth can be an impediment to forsaking all and following Christ, we see this in the story of the, uh, of the rich young ruler. Um, and just before we get there, I'll, I'll hit on, uh, yeah, Matthew 19. Truly, I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not because wealth is evil, but it's because God will not be second, right? He will not be second. The rich young ruler wanted to follow Jesus, but he didn't want to leave his wealth behind, and God will not be second. He is above all. He is Lord of all. So as we as we consider this passage we should we should inspect our lives and say how is our life oriented and for you wealth may not be the block right it may not be the block but there may be other desires and distractions on this earth that prevent you from wholeheartedly surrendering to and pursuing the will of God in your life So you know consider the questions where do you find your security what are your coping mechanisms when things get difficult what is most dear to you what are your idols um, if you look at your weekly schedule, what do you spend the most time doing? If someone else looked at your Google calendar, your work calendar, what would they feel about your life, right? Is this what God's calling you to? Or is it orient- oriented around plans you have made to do this or that and to spend some amount of time doing those things? James goes on to say that those possessions that the rich have spent their lives focused on accumulation, uh, on accumulating are corroding, they're not just wasting away like our transient lives on earth. They're standing as a witness against those who have gathered them over time. And this, uh, this is found all the way back to the Old Testament in Ezekiel when he's talking about the end times. It says, They will throw their silver into the streets, and their gold will be treated as a thing unclean. Their silver and gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. It will not satisfy their hungry or fill their stomachs, for it has caused them to stumble into sin. So Jesus was clear that our our treasures, our idols, our priorities reflect our hearts, right? Our calendars reflect reflect our hearts. Um, All these things reflect our hearts. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In 1 Timothy 6, this is spoken to again, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money, the love of money. But there is a bidirectional relationship that's being highlighted between our heart attitudes, what's inside, and how we orient our lives, how that projects out. When we orient our lives inappropriately, it further corrupts our heart attitudes. It's a snowball rolling downhill, and it's really corrosive. Before we know it, we drifted farther and farther And we've gone deeper and deeper into self-absorption. A focus on self and wealth leads to mistreating others who are made in the image of God. James uh, chapter 5 speaks to this. Um, Scheming to maximize gains for oneself at the expense of others is not a biblical worldview. We're all created in God's image. Each person is valuable. Deuteronomy 24, 14, do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. It will become apparent that they lived a life of, of arrogant independence they had condemned and murdered from their position of power. But I'm going to transition us now to God's kingdom, and it flips this whole paradigm upside down. We see the poor receiving their inheritance of life and the joys of heaven, while the rich suffer in the story of Lazarus. In Luke chapter 16, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. So it's all fading away. We can't orient our hearts toward independence and, and attempts at self-built security. We have to humbly surrender, surrender to God, that's what we're called to, and cling to dependence upon his presence. So the end results are clear in James. They're destructive if we trust ourselves. We're created to partner with God as vessels, just as we, as we sang that, uh, that song earlier on in worship. In this world, to bring God's kingdom here and now. So we understand and submit to the will of God through prayer, through studying scripture, through connection with a community like this one at Antioch, um, and we, we spur one another on toward, Lord, toward love and good deeds. So this is what we're being called to in James 4 and 5. We're being called away from a life of passivity, called away from a life of self-absorption and self-indulgence, and called away from a life that is focused on wealth. We're also called away from a life that trusts in things that are wasting away. We're called away from a life that exploits those around us for our own gain. We're being called to a surrendered heart that is dependent upon the presence of God every moment. So God wants to speak to us through his Holy Spirit today. He wants to highlight those who need a word of encouragement, those who need monetary help, those who are ripe for the harvest and are desperate for a gospel message. He wants to see you as a vessel. He wants to be partnering in every step you take. We're dependent on his presence to recognize how he is moving on the earth and to join with him in that for which we were created. Okay, so I've got good news as as we kind of round the home stretch here. Jesus has done it, okay? He has modeled this for us, right? Jesus is the son of God seated on the throne of heaven, and he said, okay, I'm setting all that aside, and I'm setting all that aside because, Father, you're calling me to come to earth and to make a way for these children you love. And so Philippians 2.5 speaks to this. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, or an older version says something to be grasped. Um, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what we've heard today is we are broken, but he has done it. And we can step forward into what he has done. We can partner side by side with Jesus, accept his salvation, his grace, and his character in our lives. That's going to change how we plan that's gonna change our hearts and that's gonna change our lives, okay? So the band can start to come forward. Um, so as we move to a, a time of response, we're gonna actually uh, uh, sing a song that, um, that was introduced last week, I believe, but this song is called Open Space and, uh, and some of the words are, God, do whatever you wanna do. God, change whatever you wanna change. And so that's what I'm encouraging us to do today is, um, is to have open hands, have an open heart and say, God, what is it? Highlight to me what are my obstacles from fully realizing your presence in my life. So I ask, are you depending on his presence? Um, what's your heart attitude? Where do you find security? What are your idols? And I say, God, please reveal it to us today. Um, and then I'd also say that the Holy Spirit may be speaking something completely different to you, and I say amen to that. Right, we are dependent on His presence, and thankfully not on me. Okay, so, um, so the Holy Spirit is is going. He's here. He's going to be speaking in your hearts and and uh, and in your lives. And so, just open up to that. Um, so this is an invitation. This you know, this James four and five. It's an invitation. It's a it's a call to make Him Lord of your life. And if you've not let, yet taken that step to make Him Savior of your life. There are a number of people in here who would love to talk with you. Um, it, it, It changes everything. So let's worship. (laughs)
1: Oh <laughs>
2: on a regular basis to put our whole lives and all of our possessions before Jesus. And sometimes it's several times a day. But right now, I just want to invite you as I pray to say, Jesus, you have my car, you have my house, you have my job, you have my possessions, all the things that might represent accumulation of value and wealth, I give that all to you again today, Jesus. And that's the line we have to cross, you know. But sometimes he he calls our bluff. And he touches something and says, I want to shift that to another place. This is a place I want you to give. So if you want to step forward in, in lordship again right now, you can just put your hands out and say, Jesus, all my possessions are yours. Everything I have is yours, Lord. All that I've accumulated, you are the source. I started this thing with nothing. And I want to be living with all that you want me to have right now. Anyone that has a need, you provide that need completely. But we're saying, Jesus, houses, possessions, cars, finances. Lord, it's yours again, Lord. You are, you own everything. You're amazing. We we want to detach our identity and value from things, Lord, and say it's in you today. You are life. And we we give you the keys. We give you ownership. Do what you will with our lives, Lord. Lead us in this way of faith this week. Just Lord, in Jesus' name, Amen.